You are listening to the Real Estate Proverbs Podcast with host Kevin Jefferson. This is the number one podcast for African-American real estate professionals who are doing extraordinary things. It's time to tune in. And now your host, the people's lender. Kevin Jefferson. Jefferson. Welcome to Real Estate Proverbs Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Jefferson. And today we have a special guest by the name of Mr. Rod Watson. How you doing, Rod? I'm doing great, man. How about yourself? Man, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, Rod, tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, man. Uh, Well, as you guys know, I'm Rod Watson. I'm actually from Houston, Texas, born and raised in Houston, grew up there um, up until I graduated from high school in 96 and went off to college in beautiful city of sunny San Diego where I had opportunity to play college basketball. So my whole life, basically, college was growing up in Houston. Uh, my mom and dad, they uh, got divorced when I was young and I grew up, you know, with a single mom. She she raised me up until, you know, again, I went off to high school. She got remarried. I have two other siblings and then I have four other siblings on my dad's side <clears throat> that were half brothers and sisters. And uh, my mom's side of the family, um, they live in a town west of Houston. It was called Brookshire, Katy, Texas which is where I ended up graduating from high school. Um, but my dad's side of the family lived in the city, city of Houston called Fifth Ward. So, you know, I'm a Texas kid, man. Had had the, you know, you know, fortune. I was fortunate enough to grow up with a big family and, you know, I got a lot of love. And um, you know, we also, you know, I went through some tough times during my 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 period of being an adolescent. My mom, you know, she got remarried and it was a challenging relationship in the marriage that she was in. My dad went to prison when I was young. So, you know, I didn't see my dad after he, he went. When he went into prison, I was maybe 10, 11 years old and I didn't see him again until I was 22. So, you know, that was tough. You know, I, I had to deal with, you know, the, the effects from that. And of course, the impact that it had on my life as well as my siblings and all the things that went on. So, you know, growing up during that period of time, you know, I had some challenges, but, you know, the, and I, you know, we got through it. Um, and, you know, here I am today, man. And I was fortunate enough, you know, during that period of time to stay focused, you know, work hard. I, I took to sports, played, played basketball. That, that became my passion around the age of 11. And uh, just fell in love with the game, man, and then put my all into it. And fortunately for me, I was able to get a scholarship, play college basketball, which was a dream of mine. And uh, I got to accomplish that. You know, the things I pretty much set out for myself, I've been able to accomplish. So Houston, Texas kid, man, now living out in Cali and living the Cali life and, and, and uh, you know, enjoying a career in real estate and, you know, getting to spend a lot of quality time with my family. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Hoops. Uh, you said you uh, you uh, played in San Diego. Yeah, played San Diego. Uh, it's called San Diego Christian, which is Division Two college where I had a chance to play. And um, yeah, yeah, Division Two basketball, which was a great experience. Got to play some D one schools, camps, um, and I had a lot of fun doing that and enjoyed the process and got to meet a lot of great people. Also, you know, playing playing the game, man, it just opened up so many doors for me. Uh, let me introduce myself to so many people that otherwise I would not have met, which actually because of playing, you know, ball in college, I had a chance to meet people who are now playing a role as far as supporting me in my career. Um, had I not met those individuals through basketball, probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing at this level. Gotcha. You grew up a Rockets fan? I did. Absolutely, man. Got to jam my man Dream and, you know, um, Robert Orr and Sam Cassell, Kenny Smith, Clyde Drexler, Vernon Maxwell. Vernon was my favorite player. So, um, I enjoy watching the Rockets growing up and even before burning those guys, Mitchell Wiggins, you know, all those different guys that played for Robert Reed, 
you know, those those, you know, Rocket guys that were that were there in the early stages. I remember when the Rockets went to finals against the Celtics in 86, man, I was glued to the TV screen, man. That was that was big for us in the city of Houston. But yeah, man, definitely a diehard Rockets fans got my Rocket shorts on right now. I was hurt, man. I was hurt because I'm a Lakers fan. So when we lost to you guys in the finals, I was like, what in the world? Like, but you guys, you just outplayed us, essentially. You outplayed us. Um, yeah. I still think, and of course, I mean, I was younger then, but I still think the Lakers uh, would have been a better matchup. But I remember that series against you guys just wanted it more. Yeah. <laughs> just wanted it more. Well, you know, the the, the 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 Rockets were really good at that time, you know. Um, and, of course, you know, they had the Twin Towers, both Ralph Sampson and Akeem Olajuwon. So those guys were a force back in the day, man. You know, when you had those two seven-footers, because the game of basketball, everything was about playing inside out, you know, whereas, you know, now in the era of basketball, you know, everything's from the outside in. Very little in unless, you know, guys are driving to the rim, dunking or getting layups, everything, you know, shots that are being taken are all three-point shots. Right. Right. It's weird, man, because I guess at the time, I mean, like I said, we were younger. Um, I guess at the time, I didn't realize that Dream what was his second year in the league. In 86. Yeah. Was this, let's see, he came in the league in 84. So, yeah, yeah two years. Two yep. years in the league. And what, Ralph Sampson, yep. what, three? He was about three or four. Yep. Three or they four. Were both young. They yep. were young guys, man. Yep. They were young guys. I always wonder what would happen if Sampson's knees didn't, if he didn't have a problem with his knees, where that team would have been. I mean, yeah, it was tough back then. Those big guys like that either they had knee or foot or feet or foot problems man which you know a lot of big guys careers were ended due to either knees or feet but you know when you're that big man that's a lot of impact on your joints running up and down the court like that and the pounding that they take like what well, a lot of people don't understand like I played obviously a guard my career you don't your body doesn't experience the level of pounding that bigs face. Like bigs are constantly boxing out. You're getting pushed, you're getting bumped, you're getting hit the entire game. Whereas guards, especially in this area, that just doesn't happen. But when you're playing as a big man, especially they were physical back then. You gotta remember, like there was a lot of fights back in the eights with big men. You know, if you go look at the game tapes, there was like people think these little fights that guys be doing, like they threw hands back then. So um, it was a physical game, and so it's it just unfortunate. A lot of times, you know, they didn't have like the medical, you know technology like we have now you know to help guys on the recovery you know post-game recovery like you know guys have cryotherapy got the best doctors they got the best chiropractors therapists massage all of that like guys just when I played back then you know you know what I mean and you just iced up after the game and that was it and be ready to go the next day on a back-to-back now yeah, guys I, are sitting out if they sore you know it's, it's a different game man yeah I, I think I, if I'm not mistaken I remember them getting in fights back in the day and not even getting ejected <laughs> <laughs> like people would get in fights and not get ejected. But I mean, it's definitely uh, a different league. Um, you throw a couple of technical foul, two shots in the ball. Keep playing. Yep, Keep playing. Keep playing, man. Keep playing. So we uh, you, you go to college. Uh, what did you major in? Yeah, I, did, I majored in kinesiology and counseling. So I had a, a double minor, you know, that's where I majored in both kinesiology and counseling. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, did you play pro at all? Yeah, I went overseas for a few years, played in Sao Paulo, Brazil, which was, you know, it was cool. It was a great experience. I mean, obviously nothing like the NBA. Um, but yeah, man, I got I was fortunate enough to get that experience and see what that was like and kind of max out on the dream of, you know, playing basketball. You know, I never knew, you know, that, that, that the game would take where it has. But, you know, I, I was always the type of person that I knew if I worked hard enough and I did do the right things, took care of my body, I'd be giving myself an opportunity. And with the competitive, you know, nature, spirit that I had, I always knew I'd have 
have a shot. So um, the NBA just wasn't in the cards. But, you know, I feel like if I played in this younger era, I definitely would have been in there. But, you know, back in that day in the 90s, man, you had to be fucking good. Like I'm talking like McDonald's All-American, you know, now, you know, like you got kids getting drafted now and they ain't even McDonald's All-Americans. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> like they getting into the league just, you know, because the guard plays is, is now about small. Right. So. If you got quickness and speed, which I had, and I can handle the ball, you could play. But, you know, it's a different game. But, you know, having an opportunity to play like that and see the world and compete against different people from all over the world was great, man. And I couldn't couldn't ask for more, especially coming from where I came from. Got you, man. Got you. Yeah, it's it's totally um, it's totally different, man. So you you gra- you graduate uh, high school. Well, you graduate college. You go overseas, play ball for a few years. How uh, how'd you get into real estate? Just just, you know, really, man, um, started with staying up late watching TV, man. And, you know, they would there would be these infomercials that would that would come on. And I stumbled across the infomercial. Carlton Sheets was the actual name of the guy. And he had a course called How to Buy a Home with No Money Down. And I studied the course. I paid for it. Best, you know, one hundred seventy six dollars I ever spent in my life. Uh, paid for the course, studied it, um, learned to learn the language of real estate and realized like, man, this is this is a career path. I want to I want to pursue I want to be in and uh, you know and things just over time I just kept studying and doing research and then finally you know after about three and a half years of you know reading books and just kind of picking other people's brain that was in the business um, I decided I wanted to you know enter the career path to real estate and I was coaching college basketball at the time so um, a lot of people thought I was crazy because I left the college coaching ranks and you know got into real estate but you know I knew what I wanted I didn't want to work for someone I didn't want another man or woman for that matter to be have control over you know how I spend my time and just my overall destiny. And that, that was a personal decision for me. So I saw real estate as a way of of, of creating, you know, the, the type of lifestyle that I wanted, giving me the freedom that I wanted to be able to live life on my own terms. And of course, I knew that I would have to put in a lot of work to make good money, um, or if, if not good money. And um, I was willing to do it, you know, and I'm still on that path. So it, it just it just was one of those, you know, careers that I looked at and said, damn, you know, not only can I make a lot of money, you know, I can leave something behind for my kids from a legacy standpoint. And I can also, you know, break, break, you know, break, the, you know, the, how do I put it? You know, break these crazy curses that we've oftentimes had in our cultures, black people. Right. Where, you know, I've, we've seen our families work for people, slave for people, make other people wealthy or rich. And then it's like, that's it. You know, you you spend your dad spend all his time working or your mom spend all the time working. She don't get to spend time with her kids and you don't get to, you know, really enjoy that like a lot of other coaches do when they're in control of their own destiny. So it, it was a no brainer for me, man. And I jumped right in head first. Wow. You brought a blast from the past, man. Carlton Sheets, the original uh, fix and flip. You know what I mean? I think that's really the probably the first course on real estate that I knew of. Um, yeah, I, don't, I know there have been others, but his was, you know, he was on TV. I know that guy spent a lot of money just to even get those courses, but I know he probably made a fucking killing off of those courses, man. I mean, they weren't they weren't super expensive, but they were informative. And I, and I used the knowledge from those, from those courses to actually buy my first property with no money out of pocket. And um, I did several other deals after that from learning everything in that course. It was yeah. probably the most course that you know, a lot of these gurus, they're selling bullshit now. They just want you to buy their books and tapes and filling it with filler, never really giving you the knowledge and information that's necessary to truly build a business or be successful at what they claim they're the best that are gurus at. And so, 
you know, his course was really straight to the point, broke everything down, you know, gave you basically a big syllabus, you know, to understand and break down the vernacular, the vocabulary of real estate and, um, you know, the steps to take to, to actually put a deal together. And so I, I definitely valued that course and got a lot, took a lot from it and was able to apply it. Got you. So what year was this? 2003. Okay. Yep, 2000, 2000, yep. 2003. So when did you get your license? I didn't get my license until oh seven, oh eight in Texas. I started out licensed in Houston, Texas. And um, yeah, that's when I started. So let's talk about that yeah. because that's a that is like the ultimate bottom. You know what I mean? Like this everything had cr- crashed at that point, the Great Recession in terms of real estate. So mm-hmm. what was your first year like in that market? It was great, man. You know, a lot of people thought I was crazy getting out of, you know, like I said, college, college basketball. I actually was selling auto, auto. I was selling cars at the time before in real estate. I worked for Jaguar Land Rover and the final dealership I was at was Porsche. And a lot of people thought I was crazy leaving Porsche to go into real estate when the market was crashing. But um, I understood what I was doing and, and I was strategic about my moves. I focused on a niche and we got into distressed sales because that was what was going on in the market at that time. You know, foreclosures and short sales. And no one really knew anything about short sales. So I had a plan. I immersed myself into the short sale market, um, built my marketing and branding out and started focusing on people that look like you and I that needed help. And uh, lo and behold, a lot of people needed my help. And I ended up helping a lot of families avoid closure. Um, And it was rather quite surprising how fast things took off. So, I mean, literally from the time I got my license, my wife was also a license. So she was doing business. Things took off, man. And we, we, we were able to, you know, I was able to walk away from my job with no guarantee and income in 2008. And I've never looked so, you know, we've been we've been blessed. It's been it was good. The first year was awesome. And then it just kept building from there. Right. Explain to us what a short sale is. Yeah. A short sale is basically when someone actually purchases a, um, say, for instance, 100 percent financing market changes. There's no equity in the home. So they owe more than what the home is worth. But they fall into some form of a financial hardship, death in the family, loss of income due to economy. Uh, sorry, a recession in the economy where, you know, you might go from making 70000 but your job says if you want to keep this job, you got to take a 10% or 20% pay in, you know, income. Well, for a lot of people on fixed incomes, that's that's a lot of money, right? And you go from being able to, which most people who are even on fixed income or salaries, that money is just enough money for them to pay their bills. So any type of change, you know, in that can definitely be a, a profound impact as far as, you know, their ability to pay their bills. And so um, it's a financial hardship, you know, like I said, divorce. Divorce, um, depth in the families, loss of income, or you or you get laid off, all those things can factor into a financial hardship. So you have to be able to prove that you have a financial hardship. And once you can prove that and also show properties upside down and you don't have the ability to sell it because there's no equity, then the bank will consider you for a short sale. And basically they look at all of your financials, ask for your bank statements, your pay stubs. Um, if you know if you're not employed, um, that they'll they'll get they'll request verification for that. And um, and then basically they look at they look at all of those things to then determine. Of course, you have to write what's called a hardship letter explaining why you're requesting and can being considered for a short sale. And once the bank approves you, and what happens is an agent like myself will represent you, put your home on the market um, at a reduced price. Usually typically it'll be anywhere from seven to ten percent less than what the actual market is. And um, we would focus on marketing your property. So if the market was, say, for instance, um, for a non-short sale property, homes were selling at 500000 but your home is a short sale and you're underwater. So you need to price the home 10% less. So instead of pricing at 500, you're pricing it at 470, 475. 
that's obviously going to attract a lot of buyers. And so we would get multiple offers oftentimes on these types of properties. And you take the highest, best, the highest offer with the best terms. And then you have to present that offer to the bank. And the bank has to review that offer and determine whether or not they want to accept that offer or counter that offer or reject that offer. Um, if they choose to accept the offer, then you go into what's called you know, title or escrow. Um, and typically, based upon the terms, that deal will close anywhere from 60 to 90 days, sometimes 120 days, because the bank has to go through review of that entire offer. And it's a process that they go through. Whereas if you have a non-short sale or distressed transaction, you know they're going to close anywhere from 15 to 30 days. So the short sale process took a lot more time than your standard transaction because, like I said, it required bank approval and the banks don't move fast. They weren't staffed to deal with short sales at that time. So they had to build up their whole processing center just to be able to process these transactions. And you got to imagine banks are in the business to make money. So then they had to pivot and change their focus to how do we get all these properties off our books? Either we foreclose on them, which is costly, or we work out some form of resolutions, which is typically a short sale loan modification. So, you know, we went through that and that's basically the process, you know, and that's what people had to go through all over America during that period of time. And I saw it as a golden opportunity to build my business and earn income for my family and I, and it worked out. And I was right by betting on myself, right? By choosing to go into a niche market and help people as opposed to, you know, being like everyone else to say, oh, the sky's falling. You don't want to be in real estate. You know, there's no way to make money. You know, people don't have jobs, et cetera. I saw it as the opposite and found a way to make it work. Awesome, man. So how long did the the short sale wave uh, last? How long do you think? It it went from about 2000. The bottom fell out around 2009. So it went from 2009 to about 2014. So I would say it lasts about a good seven years, almost eight years. So this was in Houston, Right, all over the world, but I started. No, and then I, you started. I came to the United States, but I started in Houston doing short sales, and I came to San Diego, and then I started working with Bank of America on a uh, uh, incentivized pilot program called Cooperative Short Sales. So I headed up their team out here on the West Coast. And, um, you know, we did about 40 million in sales just on that deal. That was a great opportunity working with Banker. But yeah, I did short sales in both Texas and uh, California. Wow. So, so 2014 hits. Um, and tell me how you transitioned from doing majority short sales to uh, switching your business. Yeah, it was mindset, man. I, I started to see the writing on the wall that the short sale you know, market was shifting and that it was time to reinvent myself. Kind of like how you see artists like Jay-Z and Diddy and all these different people. You know, they can't be the same person their entire careers. They have to figure out how to pivot themselves to remain relevant and, uh, you know, um, to maintain attention. So for me, when I saw that everyone and their mom was doing short sales, it was time to get out of the business. And also the market was changing. People were no longer in distress positions. Now, property values were going up. You know, we were coming out of the recession. And um, at that point, I was like, you know, I don't want to I don't want to continue to do this. And how am I going to, you know, continue to have success in this business if I'm no longer doing short sales? So the logical thing was either you're going to have to work with buyers or you got to go get listings. And I said, well, if I'm going to go get listings, I'm going to focus on getting higher price point listings. Um, after closing one of my biggest sales, I closed a deal for $1.3 million, ended up doubling in the transaction. You know, I made like 80, whatever, $82,000. That was the most money I ever made in my life at one time, at that particular time. And I sat back and I said, shit, man, you got to figure out how to do this consistently. You know, if you can figure out how to do this three, four times a year until you master it to where you start being able to do it 12 months out of the year. Um, it's worth the time, even if it takes me a decade, it's still worth the time to figure out how to brand yourself. And what I did my research on was breaking into the luxury luxury space and what that entailed. 
So I educated myself. I actually got a designation, which is basically a certification that you can receive as a realtor and uh, studied about how to actually work with luxury buyers and sellers. And it's called the certif- it's called the um, Certified Luxury Home Marketing Specialist. And um, I took that designation, passed it and got certified and then just basically studied all the information they provided in that course and uh, went and started focusing on building a brand. But just like how I focused on a niche market in short sales, distressed assets, I said, you know, how am I going to have success early and often in this space of luxury real estate when a lot of people don't look like me? I mean, when me Meaning probably 5% of the people that own luxury properties are not black. Um, I would probably say 97%. And people typically at that level work with people they know, trust, and like, and identify with. And I realized I didn't identify with a lot of white Americans that owned out here on the West Coast, you know, two, three, 10, 15, $20 million properties. And it was less likely they probably choose me over the more experienced agent that just so happened to look like them too as well. And so for me, it was like, all right, well, if you want to enter this space, you got to be realistic. And if you want to have success, you got to prepare yourself for what you're going to be faced with. And so I focused on pivoting and and putting my back on sports, you know, sports and entertainment. And I realized that I had a lot of in common and that there was an underserved market where I could go in and be able to help athletes make, you know, sound decisions when it came to buying and selling. So that's what I did. I focused on creating a brand in that space, steady, got the knowledge and information that I needed. And I went out and practiced. I went out and did the deals, you know, marketed, you know, when I got opportunities. I actually, you know, I, I, I did my job and I performed, you know, and got the job done. And as a result of that, more people begin to, you know, trust me, refer business to me. And it just kind of just stair step year after year after year. So it was just about educating myself and realizing where the opportunities were and then focusing and shifting my mindset and just staying committed to the process of doing what I needed to do. You know, um, I did what I hated to do. Like I loved it. Like Mike Tyson says, you know, and I stay, I just stay consistent with it. You know, it takes discipline, that same level of discipline that I brought from the game of basketball. I just apply it. I've, I've applied it in my life in real time here in the world of real estate. And you have to stay disciplined and consistent for a very long period of time. Unlike sports, you know, you can go in the gym, get up shots, you know, every day and then you're playing twice a week and you can see the results of being in the gym, getting those shots. Whereas in real estate, you know, you put a lot of time in and it takes time to see the results from the time that you're putting in here, sometimes years. And that's really the difference in this business of why people have success and people don't, because a lot of people aren't patient enough. And when adversity hits, which definitely comes in this business, people give up. They look for something else to do because they're not focused on building a career. They're just focused on how can I make money, right? And if you want to be in this business, you, you have to have a you know a broader mindset and, and an understanding and a commit to, un, to, to, to understand that it's going to take a lot of time to see results. But if you stay committed to it and you're prepared to reap your, you know, reap the fruits of your labor back in, then you can have a lot of success when that when that particular time comes. But you just got to be willing to put in the work and stay consistent. So it was mindset. I had a mindset mindset shift, and then I just stayed focused on building my business the way I wanted it to look like five, ten, you know, because that ball is constantly moving, right? I may be whatever I'm working on right now, all 24, 36 months from now, if that makes sense, right? And each each year that ball just gets pushed further out. Further further out, further out. So it's always ongoing, but you start to reap the benefits of the work that you're putting in now, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. And that's something I clearly understood when I got into business. So I just stay focused on doing what I needed to do, man, to maintain while I'm growing my business and to make enough money to be able to support myself and my family, which means you got to close bigger deals because you've got larger gaps in between 
unlike if you're closing standard transactions at your average market price, which here in California just so happened to be LA is 800,000, whereas maybe in Houston, it's 250 or 350,000, right? But the luxury market in LA starts at 5 million. Not everybody can sell a $5 million house. You just don't wake up and sell a $5 million house. So you have to build relationships. You have to prove yourself. You have to be consistent with your marketing, your branding networking, all of those things you have to consistently be able to do over a long period of time before even fucking making money. And that's what separates people and why a lot of people don't succeed in this business because they can't withstand the process that it takes to go from point A to point B to C, D, E, F, G, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's um, I was reading a statistic with NAR. It, it was, um, I think I've seen it in like 2018 and 2019, uh, the average African-American real estate professional makes $24,990 a year in yeah. real estate. Yeah. And that survey came from agents who have been in the business a minimal of, I believe, eight years. And I think 50% of those people had full-time jobs besides the real estate. Yeah. Um, so there is a huge discrepancy in the income that we make. Well, that real estate agents make. And I, I said all that to say, what was it that helped you make that mindset shift? Because it's one thing for us to think it, but there's something that has to push us to to help us make that thing switch. What what do you think it was for you? Um, seeing seeing, you know, growing up and seeing the way black men and women were treated in the South, um, seeing my dad, you know, go through what he went through, being locked up in prison, seeing my mom struggle and do what she needed to do to try and make ends meet. But, you know, still while still trying to maintain her dignity, um, looking at my family's history, my grandfather only having a fourth grade education, you know, having to work for a Jewish lady and basically be treated like a slave. All of those things I thought about is how do you break this cycle? How do you change that? And you change that by making a decision that you are going to make it happen. And um, I didn't want my kids growing up watching me being a yes man to nobody, watching me being subservient to somebody that don't look like me while helping them, you know, build a better their families. All of those things I sat back and thought about and said, I'm not living my life that way. And and I'm going to at least die trying to change and alter that with every fiber in my body. And I knew that that was that was something that it was about simply making a decision and getting past the fear of what could happen, all the bad things that could happen and focusing on all the great things that were ahead of me if I, you know, took a stance and made my mind up that, you know, I was going to live my life on my own terms or die trying. And that was it. Just, you know, looking at past circumstances in my family and then looking at the experiences that black people went through. And I said, fuck that. It's enough. We don't no longer have to like this. It's a choice. And it's not going to be easy, but it's a choice. So before the mindset shift, and if you can remember, what do you think your average production was per year? Doing, doing before, I, you know, meaning when I first got into business up until when I kind of made the mindset shift to get into the sports entertainment side. Yep. Yeah, I was doing anywhere between 15 to 12 deals a year. Okay. Yeah. And when when you had that first uh, big deal, was it an athlete or just you just happened to luck up on oh, a good buyer? Oh, no, no good big deal was doing distressed sales. I sold a property in La Jolla, one of the richest, sorry, one of the wealthiest zip codes in the, in the United States of America. Um, it was actually a attorney, two sisters, their parents had died, actually passed away in the house. And uh, they had three loans on the property, but one of the loans, they didn't have a deed recorded against the property. And um, they were going to let the house go into foreclosure. And keep in mind, I, I shared that I was working with Bank of America doing their pilot program called Cooperative Short Sales. They had sent me out on an assignment to present a work Package, which was basically to allow them to enter into the program to 
do a short sale on the property, avoid it from going to foreclosure. So that was my first big deal because I showed the two sisters that the bank made a mistake and didn't record all three liens. And they were, one of them was an attorney and she couldn't believe it. She first, she was like, you're not right, you know, whatever. And I said, look, give me 15 minutes and I'll show you. So I pulled the title records. I went, sat and met with her and said, listen, there's no deed recorded. You actually have, you know, you actually have equity, $500,000 equity there. And you're about to let this property go into foreclosure. The banks haven't caught this. I'm showing it to you. What do you want to do? Well, of course, she was like, yeah, we want to sell it if what you're saying is right. So I listed the house. And immediately from putting on the market, I got like 13, 14 offers. And one of the offers um, came in at the highest and best at 1.3 million, but they were investors and they were like, you can represent us. And so I represented them, double-ended it. And that's how I got the biggest deal of my life at that time. I've made more money on one deal ever since then. But um, actually the, the most of the money I've made on a deal was representing an NBA player. But at that point, that was the most money I've ever made. Gotcha. Wow. That's, that's big, man. So yeah. getting, you know, switching over to the uh, luxury side. Um, what was your first deal like uh, selling a luxury home besides the, the short sale you did? Yeah, first deal, I actually helped the Indian family that hired me. I spent some time actually farming a neighborhood, which basically means you canvass that neighborhood with marketing materials for an extensive period of time. And it took me about a year to get this listing, but I ended up getting it. Indian family, we listed it at about a million fifty. We listed it at about a million fifty. Or no, let me think about it. What we ended up selling for? But we sold for like one point one. But we listed it for like um, a million nine five, and it sold for one point one million, like five thousand over asking. Got multiple offers on that property as well. But I actually represented him, and I put the property on a TV show. I actually got a helicopter, flew over the property, showed what it was like to live the life in that neighborhood and that community. I mean, I went above and beyond. I spent some, you know, good money on marketing dollars. And we sold a house in less than five days on the market. And the family was super happy. They're still clients of mine to this day. They live up in L.A. now. Uh, and that was a great building. That hadn't been done by someone that looks like me in that neighborhood. And that was just the beginning. And uh, I went on to sell three more properties in that neighborhood. And this was down in San Diego before moving to Los Angeles, my business to Los Angeles. But that was my first, you know, actually, I take that back. That was my first luxury experience in LA and sorry, in San Diego, California. But initially my first like luxury experience was selling my really good friend um, at the time who played for the Rockets, his house, and we sold it for a million dollars. And um, we actually were still living in California and his property was in Houston and he called me and he trusted me enough to still market and sell his home. And we sold it in less than 30 days for a million dollars and he made some good money off of it. But that was our first luxury sale. And then wow. the one I just explained to you afterwards was my second. And then and everything else just kind of opened up from there. And I just stayed focused, just kept pushing. You still licensed in uh, Texas? Yep. Yes. Okay. Cool. Cool. So breaking into that luxury market, like what were some of the things that you did to, to, to get those connections back? You know, in the in the in the athlete represent athlete space, I basically just focused on relationships that I have. I was coaching at the college level. You know, reaching back out to AAU coaches, um, college coaches that I knew, um, families that I knew, and that I had relationships with. Um, you know, people that that I just overall had relationships with, and, and um, you know, grew up knowing over the years and trusted. And I went back to them and reached out. Yeah. And you know, that was that was basically it, man. It was relationships that really opened up the doors. Like you know, from the years of playing basketball on the court um I got a chance to connect with NBA players. Um, I got a chance to meet different executives at the front office level, you know, because they would be in the gyms in the summer watching their clients, watch players play or 
you know, networking with the agents of the players. So I, I got, a, you know, <laughs> an opportunity to meet a lot of people. So what I did was I just went back and started reaching out to those people when I finally moved my business to L.A., and, uh, you know, let them know. First thing, I just focused on building my brand. I identified who my audience was, built a brand, you know, put out marketing, collateral, got a website, built the perception up of this is who I am and this is who I wanted to attract. And then once I did that, I focused on reaching out to the people, like I said, that I had built rapport with, letting them know I'm operating in this space. Hey, can you take me with this person? Yeah, I'll introduce you. Or, hey, do you have a client that's looking to, you know, relocate out here or buy a second home or invest? I'd love to be a resource. And, and that's just kind of where it started. And it took off from there. Wow. So you just use what you had. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you have to, be, you know, if you're going to have success in this space, a lot of it's going to start with the people you and trust you as, you know, because it's tough to work with strangers and, and people that don't, you know what I mean? And build rapport and trust, with them, especially when you're at this level. So in terms of the luxury marketing, give me some ideas of some of the things you do to market your brand. Um, well, private events has been a big one. Um, up until the pandemic, we did a lot of private events. I, was, I would say those have been some of the best ways, of, you know, the most consistent ways of generating leads and, you know, more new connections. Um, aside from private events, it's the social media, you know, advertising and, and posting our successes and what we're doing and the people we're connected to, the events that we attend um, has been a great way to attract people. So leveraging social media, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, those were all platforms that, you know, I built my brand on that attracted a lot of people and opened doors for myself. The other was I hosted on a radio show for four years on ESPN so that I, I used that to leverage and position myself to, you know, get in front of more people in the sports world and, and uh, interview professional athletes, um, successful people in business. I actually launched a podcast few years ago, had success with that um, and just produce content, man, for social media. That, that was that's been the biggest you know, way that I've been able to create business for myself and reach people all over the world. Right. How um how many other luxury agents do you know that are African American? I know quite a few. Um, I would say a handful, maybe 20, 30. Okay. All in the uh, LA area? No, no, they're spread all over the US. In LA, I've, I've, LA that are actually doing business, I know maybe four. Okay. Yeah. So is there a, a cohort or a group? Because that's a different, like, that's just, it's a totally different market uh, niche, you know, for an agent. So typically somebody who deals with athletes knows other agents who deal with athletes. So you guys have like an association or a group or you just met each other through deals. Um, no, there's no association or groups. You know, unfortunately, when it comes to us, we're still dysfunctional um, in some ways where we love embrace one another and not feel threatened. Um, and it's more competitive. Everybody's more or less competitive on territory and, you know, who's getting business where I look at it as a complete opposite. There's an unlimited, you know, um, there's just unlimited opportunity from what I see and from where I stand and working in this space. Typically, a lot more white agents work with celebrities just because they carry the listings and they've been in the business longer than us, right? And they've have they have generations of family members that have had success selling real estate. That that information, that knowledge, and those relationships get passed down to them. Whereas for us, we're coming in and having to fend for ourselves, create opportunities and relationships. And oftentimes, what I'm seeing from my perception, and when it comes to us as Black people. Um, my experiences, unfortunately, oftentimes have not been warm welcomes, have been more or less, you know, your competition, stay out of the way, or I'm reluctant to really get to know you. But I have met a good group that are, you know, very supportive and we root for each other, but we don't have like this organization or group. I am actually working on 
launching a group this summer called the Sports and Entertainment Network, SEN, that is collectively for us and by us. Um, there are other groups out there, like I said, but they're predominantly ran and controlled by white people. And they've been created to keep us out of those circles um, where we're not as I, how's, how can I put it? We're not openly rejected, but we're not openly welcome, if that makes sense. Makes so, a lot of sense. Um, I chose to create my own and just focus on working with people who have you know like minds like myself and um, understand that we're better working together than we are being separated and apart. But like I said, we're new in this space. So all with all of that being said, I understand where I, what's needed. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just focusing on building relationships with people who are open. And I've met quite a few, like I said, agents. It's just that at this at this level, man, it's just not fucking easy. Like look at it and they probably look at me and think, oh, man, you know, you know, it's, it's it, you know, how hard can it be to sell homes to ball players or just sell real estate, period. But man, at this level, it's cutthroat. I mean, agents out here is nothing like in the South or in the mid mid Midwest or back East. Like it's cutthroat. Like these agents, they're serious about their business and their territory and they'll do anything, anything to maintain their territory and their uphand and working in this luxury space. And, um, you know, with that said, I've just focused on what I can do to bring about change. So for me personally, um, I help a lot of younger agents that are un- that are that are underneath me on my team. And I don't say it in a negative way. It's just from an order standpoint of seniority and knowledge in this space. I share my or I share knowledge I've learned in this business to help them grow and prosper in this space. And um, what I've seen since I've gotten into business of people that look like us, especially the old generation, there's a disconnect and they're not embracing young black agents. And I'm not saying all, I'm just saying a large percentage because there's not a lot of us at this level. And so for me, I'm like, all right, how can I pass this information down to the next generation so it continues to you know, um, expand and grow and more agents can have success in this space. So I've been focused on creating a networking group that's for us and by us and also mentoring other younger agents that look like you and I um, and helping them get themselves established in the business of real estate. Got you. So where is your, what was your production in 2020? Um, last year was a down year. I didn't do a lot of business because I focused on a couple other projects, but we ended up doing collectively as a team, we did 12 million. Um, whereas the year before we did uh, almost 18. So, you know, and the year before that we did 15. So it's been kind of tweeting between like that 12, to, you know, $15 million range, which is good money, you know, and, and, and since my business is pretty much all referrals, I don't, I don't, I don't chase people. I don't beg people for business all day. I just focus on referrals and people that I know and trust. And when they refer me business, I service those clients. And I've just been working on other projects to help me grow and expand my brand through my networking events. I'm actually working on a couple of projects to bring um, a, a TV series to network. So it's just, you know, it's think really beyond just, I'm a realtor, right? I'm running a business and I'm, I'm always thinking about the next move. And how do I continue to build and expand and fast track my way through this career path as opposed to what traditionally most people, it takes them 20 or 30 years to get to where I am. I've done it in four years. Wow. So so as a a luxury realtor, um, what happens if someone comes to you and say, hey, I want to buy a house for $300,000? If there's a house to sell them for $300,000, I'm going to sell it. Okay. And I I asked that question because a lot of people think that when you're well, from my understanding, that when you're a luxury or you have a niche that you don't do anything else. No, I mean, I don't discriminate, man. I'm not one of those agents where it's like, oh, um, I only do this, you know, meaning I only sell luxury. I only sell to ball players. I mean, I could be that way if I would. I mean, if anyone comes to me and they're seeking to work with me, I consider that as a privilege and opportunity. The only thing I ask them is to take what I do and what I've built seriously and respect me as a professional. And as long as they do that, then I'll work with them. I'll help yeah, them. Gotcha. 
Are you in any type of uh, mentorship programs or anything? Myself? Like being yeah. mentored by someone? Yes. No, um, I'm not. Um, I'm not in any type of programs. You know, I do I do reading and, I've, you know, I've networked with different people, but I don't have a mentor that I, you know, seek out in this space. Um, but I've learned from a lot of people over the years. I guess I could say that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is your wife still an agent? No, she's not. I mean, she still has a license in Texas, but doesn't man she has her own business in the cannabis industry so she focuses on that and she's you know full-time mom so you know it works that's what she really loves and enjoys so she's no longer on the real estate side other than just you know supporting me when i need help and you know just helping me out on deals when i need her to do certain things but other than that man she's 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 got her own business that she runs and she's a full-time mom gotcha so if there was an agent that's just getting into the business and they decide they wanted to carve out a niche in the luxury space, what are um, two things you would tell them to do initially in the beginning? So if there's an agent that wants to get into business, they want to carve out basically their name in the luxury space, what would I tell them to do? Two things. Well, one, determine who your audience, your niche audience is going to be in that space. I mean, what are your strengths? Figure out what your strengths are. You know, what's going to create that separation and, and, and create those opportunities for you to have success early on based upon your personalities and the relationships that you have. And once you figure that out, then determine what your brand is. What do you want to be known for? And build out, build around that, right? And, and write those things down and, and, and create the persona that you want to have for yourself and your brand. And then the third thing I would tell them is just go out and build relationships. I know you asked for two, but I'm going to give you three. You know, just go out and build relationships and then also leverage the relationships that you developed over the years. And, uh, you know, seek those people out and figure out who you can help that, you know, at that, you know, at that particular time and moment. So those, those, that's what I would tell them, you know, if they want to have success in this space is develop the relationships with people that are already, you know, in the luxury space that you want to network with and get to know. And if you already know people in the luxury space, leverage those relationships by asking them to introduce you to people that you want to be connected to. Gotcha. In terms of, uh, your team. Of how many members are on your team? It's uh five of us. It's actually, sorry, seven of us total. Seven. What was your first hire? What position? My first hire. My first hire um were was an assistant, and then I brought on two other agents after that. Okay, cool. And what does twenty twenty one look like to you guys uh, from a production standpoint? Well, our goal was to do thirty transactions. We're at collectively eight so far as a team. Um, I think we'll, you know, based upon how this year is going and what we have in our pipeline, I feel we'll, we'll, we'll hit that number and maybe exceed it. Um, but, you know, right now we have eight total as a team. I've got four myself and we got a couple of the team members. Then we got three deals that are about to go into escrow. So we'll be past 10, um, you know, by the time we hit July. And with the last half of the year, the last six months, we'll only have another, you know, 15 or so to go. So we're I was having a really good year this year, especially with the way the market is out here in L.A. and how strong everything is as far as, you know, representing sellers, which is a large part of our focus is representing sellers and getting listings. So I see us having a very strong year this year and we're off to a great start, making a lot of money. That's good, man. So yep. um, in terms of growing, um, what are some things you guys are putting in place to continue to grow the brand? Uh, more events now. You know, I've got an event coming up in July. Like I said, my thing's all about relationships, man. I'm one of those people that I'm not, gonna, I'm not selling you fluff. Uh, my, I believe my track record speaks for itself. My numbers may not be as big as the other agents that I compete against because I haven't been in the business as long as them. But if you look at the level of clients that I'm working with and the period of time that I've been able to do it, most of the bigger agents that are doing big numbers now, they weren't near where I was three or four years into their career. 
So for me, it's about helping others, meaning the agents that I have on my team, helping them, bringing them along, helping them get, you know, get their deals closed. And it's, it's, it's really about, you know, developing more relationships in this space, building more relationships, you know, growing the brand through more private events that allow us to connect with genuine people, people that we want to get in front of or that we want to get to know. And uh, I've got a couple other big things in the works. So, um, you know, really just focusing on the, you know, just the relationships aspects. That's because that's how you sell the big deals. You don't necessarily get the big deals just calling people. And you might get a couple here and there for the year. But overall, a consistent flow of business comes from people that know, like, trust you. And so for me, it's about hosting more events and expanding and showing people who we are, getting to know people um, and just build that level of trust even deeper. You know, and people like to be in good, good setting environments where they can, you know, connect with other very high level individuals, people that they you know, look up to or respect. And so I like getting people in those types of environments in the rooms and, and uh, just networking, man, and just building relationships. So the focus is build more relationships generate more leads, you know, as a team and collectively stay consistent with that throughout the year. And as long as we're doing that, we'll be fine. We're going to hit our numbers and we'll keep growing and keep building. Gotcha. Yeah, I look at your uh, your marketing on social media, uh, more specifically Instagram and probably your website. Yeah. I mean, it's it's different. You know what I mean? Like it's totally different. Uh, you can tell that you're not the um, average agent. You know what I mean? Like you've got you getting out of the cars uh, you're showing the service. Um, I think I seen you maybe in a helicopter going over a property. Okay. <laughs> yep. We've done that a few times. Got you. Got you. How, uh, how much do you think you spend on marketing? A, oh, year? a year I'll spend anywhere between man, like anywhere from like seven to $10,000, you know, give or take. Wow. I would have thought more just from the pictures that I saw, you know what I mean? Like, uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm frugal. I still figure out a ways to get a lot of shit done for next to nothing, you know, and- <laughs> Well, that's the thing about social media. It's like TV. You, you, perception is reality. So I understand how to position myself. I understand how to put out a certain level of quality of products. And I know people and I seek people out that can bring value to what I'm doing. So um, I don't just throw money away. A lot of agents just throw money away on shit that they never even get returns back on. And, and since I'm more focused on the relationship aspects, I'm not trying to work with everybody. I'm trying to work with a specific group of people, build trust and a brand amongst a specific group of people. And that's just been my focus. And in doing that, I found ways to be able to do that without having to break the bank. Wow. That's what's up, man. A lot of great information in this uh, in this podcast, man. Um, Are you currently reading any professional development books? Yeah, I've been reading. um, I've been reading The Millionaire Agent. I'm reading that again. Um, Why Should All the White Guys by Richard Lewis. Why Should All the White Guys Have All the Fun? That's a really good book. That's a real good motivational book. I highly recommend. And reading Reggie's, uh, I'm reading, I just read his autobiography. So those have been three books that I'm currently reading right now. I didn't hear whose autobiography? Richard Lewis. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, man. So I appreciate your time for anyone who wants to follow you on social media or possibly get in contact with you. How can they reach you in social media? Yeah, you can reach me at, at Rod Watson two, three um, on Instagram, on Twitter and on, on LinkedIn. It's just Rod Watson. And on Facebook, it's just Rod Watson. You can reach me on any of those platforms. I'm mostly on Instagram. And, and LinkedIn. You can reach me on those platforms pretty much anytime and I'll respond back to you. So, um, yeah. Cool, man. I appreciate Appreciate it, man. Um, yeah. This is Kevin Jefferson from the Real Estate Proverbs podcast. If you think this episode was helpful to you, please subscribe, like and share. 
Thank you and have a good night. Thank you, Kevin, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening and be sure to follow Kevin on Instagram at The People's Lender. We'll see you here next time on Real Estate Proverbs with Kevin Jefferson.